It's Thursday, January 23rd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Jeff Bezos, world's richest man, CEO of Amazon, and owner of The Washington Post, was hacked by the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman. A digital forensic analysis has determined that large amounts of data were extracted after a corrupted video file was sent to Bezos from the WhatsApp account of the Crown Prince. Stephanie Kirschgassner, investigative reporter for The Guardian who broke this story, joins us for how it all happened. Next, Reuters has an exclusive report about how Apple scrapped a plan to offer end-to-end encryption of iCloud data to its users. The plan was canned after the FBI complained that the move would harm investigations into terrorists and child predators. Instead, Apple shifted its focus to protecting passwords and health data. Joseph Men, investigative technology reporter at Reuters, joins us for more. Finally, Netflix has released some new viewership numbers for its latest hit, The Witcher. But those numbers might have been inflated after they changed the metric used to qualify a view. Before, someone had to watch 70% of a show or movie. Now, a person only needs to watch two minutes to count as a view. Jeremy Owens, tech editor at MarketWatch, joins us for how Netflix is changing its views on views. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. It wasn't just the sort of Saudis who allegedly hacked this phone, but it was actually the crown prince specifically or his WhatsApp account that sent the malicious file. And it was a video file that ended up infiltrating Bezos' phone. Joining us now is Stephanie Kirschgesner, investigative reporter for The Guardian. Thanks for joining us, Stephanie. Thanks for having me. You broke a pretty amazing story, the hack of Jeff Bezos. The Amazon boss, the world's richest man, had his phone hacked by the Saudi crown prince, Mohammed bin Salman. This happened back in 2018, but we're just starting to really see exactly what happened. Tell us a little bit about what's going on with this. It is a pretty fascinating story, and I think the way to look at it is not just that Jeff Bezos is the world's richest man and the founder of Amazon, but that he is also the owner of the Washington Post, and that's really the most important role you have to think about on this. So we already had an inkling from Bezos' own security team that they believed that the Saudis somehow had gotten access to his phone. And that discovery was established or made after the National Enquirer published details about his extramarital affair in January of 2019. Because they did an investigation, wondered, you know, how did the Enquirer get these texts? And this was what they came up with. What we revealed at Guardian was that it wasn't just the sort of Saudis who allegedly hacked this phone, but it was actually the crown prince specifically or his WhatsApp account that sent the malicious file. Right. And it was a video file that ended up infiltrating Bezos's phone. Let's take that little step back right there. Some reports I've seen that uh, uh, the uh, Bezos and the crown prince were at some type of dinner uh, and they exchanged numbers or WhatsApp handles, whatever, whatever that was. So they had very limited contact. They weren't like texting buddies or anything, but he got sent some video and it was this video that was loaded up with malware that was able to start stealing information from Jeff Bezos phone. And that happened within hours. We're told huge amount of data is exfiltrated from Bezos's phone. Now, the really eye opening part of this is that, you know, there's no way that Jeff Bezos could have suspected or even known this was happening to him. 
So, right. you know, you have to ask yourself, if he doesn't know, then what chances are for us? And these cyber warfare companies, rather, are very sophisticated and they sell their products to foreign countries, uh, often authoritarian regimes. And in some cases, the technology is so sophisticated that you as a user don't even have to click on a link. It's enough to just have a file sent to your phone to corrupt the entire phone. So from some of the findings, they were looking to see how much data was being transferred. And I guess before he got this video file, Bezos' phone was transmitting maybe about 430 kilobytes of data. It's not very much at all. And then within hours of receiving that video, it was getting up into the megabytes for months on end. There was certain days maybe that it jumped to the gigabyte range. So they were taking all sorts of information. We don't know exactly what was taken. We can just assume everything and anything that they could get their hands on. And that's as easy as it was, really. And then I think I also remember seeing that whatever this malware was had some type of kill mode on it where it was basically disappeared or it wasn't active anymore by the time that forensic teams got their hands on Jeff Bezos' phone to look for it. Well, I can speak in general terms that the difficulty with this kind of software or malware is that it is very difficult to detect unless someone is observing your phone as it's happening. Earlier, I said his role as the owner of the Washington Post is important. The reason that is, is because at the time that this file is sent, you've got Bezos owning the Washington Post and the Washington Post employing a columnist called Jamal Khashoggi, who was causing a lot of trouble, or at least a perception of trouble, for Mohammed bin Salman and his inner circle. And of course, the tragedy is that Jamal Khashoggi was killed few months later in October 2018. And the posts themselves would post things critical of the Saudi government. So this is really the thinking is they wanted to hack him for those purposes, uh, maybe smear him later, whatever that was. And for their part, I guess the Saudi embassy has denied all these allegations. They did that on Twitter. They're calling for an investigation and they want all the facts out. But that's kind of exactly what happened with the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. They did the same thing, denied it, called for investigations. And look where that ended up. It's very difficult to take too seriously what the Saudis say because they have such a challenging record in terms of being honest and telling the truth. And so many times they make statements that are obviously challenged by the facts. In this case, they called the media reports absurd and said they want an investigation. There is going to be an investigation, as it turns out, because we have two special rapporteurs at the United Nations who are following the digital leads and have come out with this. Um, I interviewed Agnes Calamar today, who is the UN Special Rapporteur on extrajudicial murders. She's already investigated and is continuing to investigate the assassination of Jamal Khashoggi. And she sees real links between that murder and this hack, um, although it might be difficult to kind of imagine why she sees the connection. But for her, the apparent personal involvement of Mohammed bin Salman through his WhatsApp account is to her evidence of a personal role in, at the very least, surveillance and targeting of an individual who would have been seen as being in the same circle as Jamal Khashoggi because of his ownership of the Washington Post. Stephanie Kirschgesner, investigative reporter for The Guardian. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Let's <laughs> go.
Apple's privacy documents, which it posts online, are actually very carefully written and very dense and confusing. I had a lot of people contact me after the story or complain on Twitter that, hey, I thought everything was fully encrypted in the iCloud, and it's not. Joining us now is Joseph Men, investigative technology reporter at Reuters. Thanks for joining us, Joseph. Thanks for having me. It was about a week or so ago that the Attorney General, William Barr, took the rare step of calling out Apple to help them unlock two iPhones that were used by this Saudi Air Force officer who shot three Americans dead at a Pensacola, Florida naval base last month. This is kind of reminiscent of what happened in San Bernardino, California, when they asked Apple to unlock the terrorist phone in that case. Apple refused to help them unlock the phone, but they did help them with a lot of other information, giving them cloud information, stuff that they could access through that. So that kind of happened. But then there are Reuters, you guys reported that Apple actually had this plan to let iPhone users fully encrypt backups of their devices and that Apple scrapped that after the FBI had started complaining a little bit about it. Joseph, tell us about that. I think one of the interesting things here, or one of the, the sort of the underlying trends, is that there's a lot of rhetoric on both sides. So the government has been complaining about the going dark issue, where you know supposedly more and more criminals can't be caught because they're too good at hiding their tracks with the aid of, of big tech, a variety of end-to-end encrypted messages and devices that are very hard to crack. This is something that is, has come up in various forms for 20 years or more. And usually it doesn't go anywhere, but it kind of feels like it's, it's getting closer now. There's the terrorism thing, which was, was driving the San Bernardino demands for Apple's help, and again, Pensacola. And between that, there have been a number of big presentations about the danger poised by sex predators after children. And any company that has end-to-end encryption or very strong encryption, including Apple and Facebook, come under fire for not doing enough and allowing you know more crimes to happen. And it's, it's very heated. On the other side, the tech companies complain about pressure for backdoors. And they make the usual arguments. First of all, they say that backdoors will be abused. If not in the U.S., then in other countries where they've got different legal approaches or less legal approaches, they say they'll be subject uh, of, uh, you know, it'll open up the attack surface. The hackers will go for that backdoor access. Most academics, most serious cryptographers, including many in the intelligence community agree with that analysis, but generally there's complaining about backdoors. And the thing is that in the middle, there's actually a lot of cooperation and it's a nobody's incentive to talk about it. The companies don't want to say, hey, we're actually selling you a little bit short on privacy because we care about law and order too. And the government doesn't want to say, hey, some tech companies are actually helping us because that might actually hurt them with customers and they don't want to punish the companies that are helping. So this is the best example that I've found where a tech company is actually meeting the government halfway. And it's interesting because because Apple is not only regarded as a major protector of privacy within the tech realm, but is advertising it very heavily and saying, you know, right. you know, there are things that are on your phone need to stay on your phone. And in fact, they cut a deal with the feds. It's interesting how much cooperation, as you said, U.S. authorities that had regular court papers and asked for and obtained full device backups from iCloud content. That happened in uh, about 1,500 cases covering about 6,000 accounts. So, you know, obviously they need to have the proper paperwork and the cause for it and everything. But Apple is helping them out with this stuff. Beyond that, I mean, the point of the story is that they've agreed to make it so that the feds can keep getting that sort of information. And a lot of people don't realize that the Apple's privacy documents, which it posts online, are actually very carefully written and very dense and confusing. I had a lot of people contact me after the story or complain on Twitter that, hey, I thought everything was fully encrypted in the iCloud. And it's not. 
There are certain things that are. Passwords, including Wi-Fi passwords, are protected. Apple can't see them, and that means the feds can't see them, and a divorce lawyer can't see them, etc. And health information and the home kit used for home electronic controls, those cannot be accessed by people at Apple, and they can't be accessed by people in law enforcement. But pretty much everything else can if you allow things to be backed up, and that includes messages that were once upon a time end-to-end encrypted, including iMessages and WhatsApp chats. If you back those up to the cloud, Because of the technology decision that Apple made after the FBI complained, those are backed up in plain text, and that means the feds can get them, and so can others. I know the conversation with these latest two examples have been about Apple, but what about some of the other companies? I mean, do Android phones work in the same way? I know Google has a bunch of phones, things like that. How does that work? That's actually sort of interesting. I mean, generally speaking, for people who pay attention to these things, Apple has a better reputation as a privacy defender than Google. And that may well be justified. But in this one case, in terms of protecting phone backups, Google is actually better. Android, since October of 2018, has allowed you to back up your storage, you know, back up your iPhone, uh, excuse me, your Android phone to recover it in, you know, on a different device or later or in case something goes wrong with your phone in a completely encrypted manner that Google does not have access to. And that means that corrupt insiders within Google, if there are any, that means hackers who get into Google, and that means feds waving court papers cannot access your Android backups. Joseph Men, investigative technology reporter at Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. No problem. Take care. They counted a view if a viewer watched 70% of a program includes for like a series. If you say you want to watch the first season of Stranger Things, if you watch 70% of the first episode, they counted you as having watched the entire thing. But now they've really pulled that back and they're only counting it after two minutes of viewing. Joining us now is Jeremy Owens, technology editor at Market Watch and the San Francisco Bureau Chief. Thanks for joining us, Jeremy. No problem. Thanks for having me. Netflix is changing what it means to actually watch a show on their streaming service. They're changing the metric that is used to quantify somebody watching a show for individual shows and the movies themselves, and even what it means for the series too. Jeremy, tell us what's going on. Well, basically, Netflix is making all this up as it goes along. And what it made up to begin with was it counted a view if a viewer watched 70% of a pro includes for like a series. If you say you want to watch the first season of Stranger Things, if you watch 70% of the first episode, they counted you as having watched the entire thing. But now they've really pulled that back and they're only counting it after two minutes of viewing, which, you know, I went and looked at The Witcher, its hottest series right now. That didn't even get to the opening credits. Same with one of its movies, Six Underground. I went and looked at that and it took more than two minutes for the first scene before you even got to the opening credits again. So even just watching that much is basically the length of most trailers now counts as viewing the entire thing. And that includes viewing an entire season of TV in the way that Netflix presents it. And we talk about the intentional viewing. They're saying that that two minutes counts as an intentional view. You watched it for two minutes. You really meant to watch, I guess, the entire thing. That's actually what they're trying to get across is, is people choosing to watch things, the popularity of that. Because it is very different for Netflix and in, in trying to measure viewership because they're not trying to sell it to advertisers. So it is a very different thing where they don't really have to do anything. So the fact that they're even doing this and giving some metrics and then telling people what those metrics are is different for Netflix from previously. Let's say with the movie Six Underground, it's very action-packed. 
probably not for everybody. But, you know, after those two minutes, you can very well say something like, well, this movie is crap. I'm not going to watch this anymore. But it doesn't matter. At that point, they got that hit. And what Netflix said was that the difference between the two was about 35%. So about 35% more views were counted by the two-minute standard than by the 70% standard. So you can see that's 35% are not sticking around to get to the 70% mark from the two-minute mark. That is some honesty from Netflix. They are letting you know what is going to change, and, and they are being rather upfront, whereas they have not always been that way. You had a, a specific number in your article that kind of illustrates that for their new series. It's called Our Planet. They said that 45 member households chose to watch that using the new metric of two minutes. But under the old metric, that would have been 33 million households. So that is a pretty big jump. And you mentioned already they really don't need these numbers to give to advertisers because that's not how their system works. But when you're thinking of all of these other streaming platforms just recently coming online or soon to be coming online, this is an important metric for production companies, actors and actresses themselves that want to get involved in projects. They're going to see big numbers coming out of Netflix and say, well, my project is going to be best suited to something like a Netflix. So, I mean, that's one of the reasons why I could think why you want to juice these numbers in this fashion, at least. And they give more numbers to the actual creators so that they can see what's happening. But what's interesting here is also they're setting a standard. Netflix is the standard for streaming services at this point. There are all these rivals trying to catch up to it. If they're going to set this standard for a view, that could mean they're setting the standard for the entire streaming industry, which is what I find super interesting is that this could have a ripple effect that now Hulu is going to adopt the same standard and, and, and HBO and Disney in the way that they measure viewership and things like that. They did mention that Nielsen uses a six-minute standard. I forget what YouTube does. I think it's like a, even less than a minute. So we're all just making up as we go along, and tech companies love <laughs> to make up these metrics yeah. as they go along. and change them to however is best suited for their needs. And Netflix even said as much as that for themselves, they said that their new definition is closer to what some of their competitors like Google and YouTube use, or I think they mentioned BBC iPlayer and a bunch of other ones. They said that's a little closer to what they're doing, so we're kind of getting in line with that. But it, to me, it seems like the examples they used in there are shorter form. They're trying to find a standard that works as little as 15 minutes and as long as the Irishman content that Netflix puts out, but YouTube, there are 30 second videos on there, you know, and, <laughs> right, and right. some of these BBC iPlayer is more short hit. The Nielsen six minute standard makes a little more sense to me because then you're getting past just one scene. Even in a 15 minute TV show, you're usually talking two minutes is a scene. And if you're turning on anything, you're going to watch a scene. So, I, you know, I feel like they may have gone a little short on this one. But to me, what does it really matter? In a world where Facebook is making up video metrics that is selling to advertisers and getting basically sued for fraud, Netflix making up a metric and then changing it to benefit itself in a way that's not being used to sell itself per se, to sell to advertisers, I don't really see that much harm in it. It just seems like a little disingenuous when you are using these viewership numbers to pump your own service. But at least they have admitted what it is up front. Jeremy Owens, San Francisco Bureau Chief and Technology Editor at MarketWatch. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. 
follow us on iHeartRadio, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.